Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I'm your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love in the world. Our movie today is kind of an exception. I am making a rare exception to my rule here for no sequels, and it is no uh, surprise if you listen to the show to know that I do not like franchises, I do not like sequels, I like to assume every movie is a one-off standalone. But there are a couple sequels out there that I have a lot of respect for because they tried something different and they actually put in some effort. And the one I'm talking about today is 1986's The Karate Kid Part 2, which should have been an absolute disaster, and I'd argue that Karate Kid Part 3 was a disaster. But for some reason, too, they put in a lot of effort and they made a really sweet, sensitive, moving film. And I'm dying to talk about it because this is one that I've loved for many, many years. And my guest today, he has been on the show before. He, it was actually my very first co-host back on the pilot episode of Staff Picks. He came in to do Top Secret, and it was a good episode, although I did not really have my pattern down yet or what the format of the show was going to be. So I always appreciate him coming on. Uh, he, was, he is a former video store clerk, which is, to me, one of the highest professions a person can have that you worked in a video store in the 80s that is fantastic i'm so excited that he's back a uh college administrator from wilmington college in, in ohio welcome back mike albright great to have, great to be on the show mario uh, i've been following the podcast and i've really enjoyed it and felt gotten to see hear about some movies i was vaguely familiar with and some other ones i really like so i think you've done some amazing things and i'm really glad to be back Wow, if I could actually teach a video store clerk about obscure and hard-to-find movies, that's like the highest praise I could get. So thank you, Mike. You've already made my day. You're welcome. And uh, my, my my experience was with this movie is I kind of fell into these movies backwards and inverted. I, I, uh, I saw Karate Kid 3 first on cable and then went back to see the original Karate Kid and saw 2 last, and I, but I think it's... It's an amazing movie, and I really like it. So like, most people didn't get to it that way, and that's how I came to it. And it's this you know, unknown gem, and I think it's amazing. Okay, so you went backwards, and I should point out again this. Um, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this on the show before, that my two favorite movies of all time are the original Karate Kid and the Bad News Bears, and I always have a hard time deciding which one I like more. But I will often say the Karate Kid's my all-time favorite movie. So, Mike, clearly I had the alternate version of your history that I saw one, and I just was absolutely transfixed by it. We saw it the last day of school in 1985 in class, and then Karate Kid 2, the second one, which I will admit, I'm curious what your thoughts on are on this, but my thoughts are was I saw Karate Kid 2 in the theater when I was 12. It came out in 1986. And I thought it was pretty good. I'm like, okay, that was it was kind of a cute movie. There was some neat stuff. Mm-hmm. But I did not like it as much as the first one. The first one is very much a crowd pleaser for little kids and stuff like that. But as I get older and I watch this one, this might indeed be the best of the Karate Kid movies. And my argument is going to be like the first one is a kid's movie and the second one is a grown-up movie. Would you agree with me on that? I would absolutely, because I, you know, I've been rewatching it just in lieu of this, and the '84 original is such a classic that it doesn't need more love, but this movie does. And I, you know, I'm older, and with the, the death of my father, it's really poignant. The stuff with with Mr. Miyagi 
and his dad and just that this is really touching and as important as the all valley tournament is like life and death is what this is about it's not just no offense to the all valley tournament but this is about people's life and death like i'm gonna kill you because i want to keep my honor and they're playing for a championship in southern california in the original movie as amazing as it is this one's more important and it's i just don't know why it's not loved as much just because it's so much it's so much more important what the stakes are the reason I think it's not love that much, and I'm just going to throw out a theory here, is that it, it doesn't really fit with the first movie. Mm-hmm. Like, the first movie and the third movie are very similar. And this, I think it's really comes down to if you consider this a franchise. Like, most people consider a series of movies a franchise, and they like to think of it as one consecutive storyline. Mm-hmm. I never I never look at movies that way. I look at them all as standalone. So... I absolutely love two, even though it does not fit with one and three at all. I think that's probably why it's not as beloved because it's like an outlier. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, because the director he's most known for another series he did, and I think those all really connect well. But this this series, yeah, two just is a bit of an aberration. It it is kind of they don't it, you only get the Cobra Kai at the very beginning, then it's just disjointed it doesn't really connect like one could go right to three and not even to two it's just this weird little side journey they took in okinawa yeah and this is sort of where we get into my problem with sequels in general and as a video store Mm -hmm. clerk you saw many many horrible you know cash grab sequels right over the years that are basically just thrown together because they're trying to cash in on the first movie and the 80s were known for I'm just thinking of movies that I kind of liked as a kid, but going back, they're just junk like Police Academy. They're just so much of a cash grab. That's what the 80s was, was sequel, sequel, horror movies. We both like so many like horrible plots, horrible continuity. How fast can we make this movie? Can we make a big profit? And that that's what the 80s was about. And this is just different. I mean, they... It made more money than the original, but it just got panned. Uh, well, I was just reading through a bunch of reviews today. I wouldn't say it got panned as much as people felt it was unnecessary. Yeah, mixed reviews, yeah. Unnecessary and mixed, and, you know, I kind of like parts of it. I don't like other parts of it, yeah. Yeah, but that's – my argument is that, again – most sequels are just cash grab. They don't really exist other than just to continue the story and just get more people to sit in the seats and like continue the all the hard work that they did in the first movie to develop storylines and themes and characters. And the second one doesn't really need to exist. But Karate Kid 2 is one of the rare ones. And that's why I really wanted to have it on staff picks. It's such a thoughtful movie. Like the director really tried to do something special with it. He really... And I'll just kind of, if people who haven't seen it before, the first movie is about a kid who wins a karate tournament in, in California, and he's mentored by this old Okinawan handyman, Mr. Miyagi. The second movie, they go all the way to Okinawa, and it's about legacies and honor and his family's good name, and like, it's very well acted. And I'd actually argue, mm-hmm. it's actually a Mr. Miyagi movie, and Daniel's only a side character in his own movie, really. I would agree. Yeah, it was such a sad story in the original movie, Mr. Miyagi's Tale, about his wife and kid dying in an internment camp. And you're like, geez, what's he been going through? And then you find out his his personal life story is even worse than that. It's it's I, I was like, how bad could his life be? And then you find out there's more to the story. And it's just one of the interesting plot points of part two. Mr. Miyagi is basically the Charlie Brown of Tomy Village, where life just constantly shits on his head. 
Sato shitting on him constantly. <laughs> yeah, although there's a couple things I want to say before we delve into this movie. Number one, um, Noriyuki, Pat Morita, who plays Mr. Miyagi. The thing that I think a lot of people forget about him is what a good actor he really was. And I think, I know he was nominated for some awards. Was it for the first one? Did he get nominated for Best Supporting Actor? Best Supporting Actor nomination in 84, and it was a pretty competitive field. So yeah, the, he's so accolades for that and i think a few other things affiliated with the first movie okay and then but i'd argue in this one he's even better because this is the one he gets to do all the dramatic scenes you get an issue a uh, scene with his father dying you get him reconciling with his childhood girlfriend like he does some really really good acting in this movie and that's why you could almost make the argument that this is a stronger movie than the first because he is such a solid foundation of a movie and he has so many dramatic scenes I would agree. Yeah, he's he he really brings it. And I think if they hadn't had given the nomination for that impactful original, he he should have been nominated for part two and possibly one. And the, but but the thing about Karate Kid Part Two and there's this like I've really delved into this to prepare for this podcast. Things that I want to bring up to people is that uh, Pat Morita is not the only good actor in this movie. And you know you know Ralph Macchio, please sit down. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> There's some other solid actors in the movie. There's one I want to bring up in particular, and this would be uh, his girlfriend or his uh, yeah his childhood girlfriend Yuki. Oh yeah, she does a great job. Just the even without speaking, just the, how she carries every scene, it's very impactful. Do you know much about her, the actress that plays her? I I actually don't. What what can you tell me? Good. You have, thank you for setting me up. <laughs> uh, the actress who plays Yuki, her name is was Nobu McCarthy. And she was one of the very first Asian-American actresses to kind of make a name for herself in Hollywood. And I've been reading up on her because she has a really fascinating life story that she was like a model in Japan back in the 50s. And she won a pageant. She was like Miss Tokyo. And she married an American serviceman and she came to the U.S. And so like almost any role in the 50s, 60s, 70s when they needed an Asian woman on TV, Nobu McCarthy would play her. Okay. And she became a very prominent, well-known fixture in Hollywood. Is like she's the one Asian actress, and she became a really good actress to the point that this is the thing I didn't know. She taught drama at UCLA. She was the drama teacher there for a long time. Wow, that's a very prestigious school. Crazy. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, wow. so you have Pat Morita in here, and you get Nobu McCarthy, one of the most acclaimed Asian actresses in Hollywood ever, and like they get to play a couple, and she's really good. That's the thing. You, you watch this movie, and I'm paying attention to all the actors and all the scenes, and like she's really good. Watch her in this movie. She can match Pat Morita scene for scene. Yeah, she's amazing. I think all the Asian and Asian-American actors do a phenomenal job the worst probably the worst actor in is ralph macchio he's just he he does a good job i think it's more compelling than is in the first the original um but he's gotta be probably the worst actor in this movie besides the only two people that might be worse actors are the two henchmen below chosen like like I had to go to wikipedia to even know what their names are or to even know anything about them just because i think of these movies they're probably the least developed henchmen, but everyone else is phenomenal. Yeah, I don't think you have to say he's probably the least a the least talented actor. I think he's definitely the least talented actor. And this is something, again, I've The Karate Kid may be my all-time favorite movie, so I've seen these movies so many times. And one of the best running jokes when you watch The Karate Kid movies is watch how increasingly bad as an actor Ralph Macchio gets through the series. And my, my wife always laughs about this, how he just... 
he he starts talking faster. That's how he interprets Daniel is he's a fast talking huckster almost. And like by part three, he just never shuts up. He just starts talking faster and faster and frantic. And my wife's like, shut up, Jesus. Yeah, when he goes to punch that guy in part three, he's talking a mile a minute. He got he got faster and he got fatter. I mean, that's <laughs> definitely evident. I met Mr. Macho a couple years ago and it was really cool. But back in 89, he was packing it on. It was all the macaroni and cheese he ate in part three, I guess. You think Mr. Miyagi would have introduced him to like rice or like healthy foods at some point? Something. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, and let's talk about some of the other actors in the movie that are a big deal. Um... Okay, well, we'll talk about the elephant in the room here, Tamlin Tomita as Daniel's girlfriend, Kumiko, who I will flat out say this. I can admit this. I have had a crush on Kumiko since I was about 12 years old. Like, she's like my all-time favorite movie girlfriend. And, like, even watching it now, I'm charmed by her. And what's amazing is this was an actress named Tamlin Tomita. She was from uh, born in Okinawa, and then she was raised in the U.S. And what's funny is she had a similar backstory to her aunt here, Nobu McCarthy, is that Tamlin Tomita was also a beauty pageant winner. She was like Miss uh, L.A., some L.A. Asian street festival. And because she won that beauty contest, she was invited to be an actor. And this was her first movie. Her first movie, she won my heart. That's an amazing first role, and she does a great job, and she seems like a more seasoned actress just from I – I wasn't aware of that, but I, you wouldn't think that watching her role. I think she really carries herself well and has a lot of complex scenes she has to do in the movie. Now, are you Team Kumiko or are you Team Ali? This is a debate that has raged for years, and – I'm specifically, before you answer the question, we're not going to talk about the girlfriend in part three because she can go to hell. So it's Kumiko or Ali. Which team are you on? Oh, I a thousand per percent agree with the part about part three. Uh, I, I knew Elizabeth Shue first just because of some other 80s movies like Adventures in Babysitting, which I thought she was super hot in. So I would give the edge to Ali just, just by a nose, but... Kamuko is she's a very attractive woman too. So when I fell into this scene a little later than you did, I was probably about twelve, like when you originally saw it. So she's very attractive, but I'll go with Allie. So you're really going Allie over Kumiko? I am. I guess I'll be racist and go with Allie. <laughs> wow. Controversy <laughs> raging right off the bat because I thought it was a slam dunk that everybody would pick Kumiko. So now you flummoxed to me, Mike Albright. I, I'm sorry. I got to keep you on your game. I'm sorry. How many beauty pageants did Elizabeth Shue win in the '80s? I'm sorry. Let's let's tally these up here. Uh, I don't know. Not very many. Anyway, these are the actors in the movie, and there's another guy. Um, I forget his name. He plays Sato, the bad guy. Uh, Danny Kamakona, who's done a lot of a lot of TV and some movies in the '70s and '80s. So. Yes, but did you know this was also his first movie? Wow, he hit it out of the park. Very, very stereotypical Asian kind of 80s role. Like, I've never, he just, the way he talks every single line into like three quarters into the movie, he's just grunting at like Miyagi and his nephew and like every one of the villagers. It's just, he's wearing sunglasses inside, except when the sunniest part of the day, he's running around without the sunglasses. But yeah, he's great, great character and imposing presence. Now, the, the phrase that you used there was, he knocked it out of the park. Now, I, that's, I'm not sure I'd use that exact phrase. I, I, I would agree it's a memorable role, but it's, it, it is the one role in this movie I love to laugh at. 
I'll give him a ground rule double. How's that? Maybe maybe it wasn't out of the park, but it bounced into the stands. Like I think at times he's amazing, and at times it's like, what is the, this guy's deal? I'm gonna make this movie awesome for anybody who doesn't love it already. And I have to I have to thank my wife for this. My wife Diana came up with a theory many years ago when she watches this movie. Because, you know, she would stay home. She was a stay-at-home mom. She stayed home with our kids when they were little, and she'd watch Sesame Street with them. And she made a connection. She was like, that Sato guy in Karate Kid 2 sounds exactly like Cookie Monster. I was, you were saying your setup, I was sensing that. Yeah, that, that's very true. C is for Cookie, that's good enough for me. C is for Cookie, that's good enough for me. C is for Cookie, that's good enough for me. Oh, Cookie, Cookie, Cookie starts with C. So anytime you watch Karate Kid 2, just picture Sato yelling, Cookie, Cookie, Cookie. Cowards. Yeah, for sure. That's a good analogy. I like that. that, That's a good connection. Yeah, so this is where I start inserting Cookie Monster sound clips into this episode to make it fun. So, again, my wife, I thank her for that. She's the one that made that connection, and I can never not hear it now. Miyagi, no tricks tonight. But tomorrow, everything gone. Their homes, their church, everything gone. Now, what starts with the letter C? I like it. That's a great connection. All right. And before we go through the plot, one more thing. I got to talk about the guy who wrote this movie. Are you familiar with Robert Mark? And I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Is it Cayman or Common? Do you know? I think it's Cayman. I'm trying to remember from all the stuff I've watched from the DVDs, but I think it's Cayman. This guy, like, had a huge love of karate. He had a huge love for, like, Japanese culture and stuff. So the first movie is very reverential towards karate, and it's all him. He wrote it, and he put it all together, and it's very well-written and very, like I said, very reverential. And then for the second one, like I said, they could have just phoned in this sequel and just made Daniel fighting more bullies in California. Mm-hmm. And I will always, to my dying day, credit him for saying, let's do something special and memorable and set it in Okinawa and Japan and make this entire thing about culture and honor and history and family. And it's very well researched and it's very accurate, what I've read. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, he really put a lot of love into the movie. And that's what I want to get across when we go through this podcast. We may make fun of the movie, but there's so much love behind it. And it's such an earnest movie that I just have to I just have to admire it. And it's the antithesis of most 80s sequels to do that, to like have to go 180 and go a whole other place and a whole other plot points and not just, you know, rehash part one. So that that's an amazing thing about it. Yeah. Although, of course, we cannot overlook the fact that they do the typical sequel thing is they immediately kill off half the cast from the first movie. I didn't catch that part. Yeah. Well, they're not dead, but it's very awkward, the transition into this movie where Daniel's mom and Daniel and Daniel's girlfriend are immediately written out of the story in, like, two sentences, and the whole rest of the movie is just Miyagi and Daniel. Yeah, because it's some of that uh, Ralph Macchio fast-talking in the beginning. He's coming back from prom, and he's super pissed off at Allie, going with some <clears throat> football player from UCLA, and they're just, like, right out Elizabeth Shue, and the mom's like, she's going to go to Fresno, and then... I don't, I'm finding out we're leaving tomorrow. That just seemed 
Like, why? How'd you just find out you're leaving tomorrow? What's like the HR department and her mom, his mom's company? <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll get into that. That's because I'm dying to talk about that. How silly the setup for this movie is. But yeah, it's like they had to pay Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita so much for the sequel that they couldn't afford Elizabeth Shue and Randy Heller. So they immediately like a it's plot convenience playhouse. Oh, mom can't come and Allie broke up with me. Let's start this movie. That's literally the first scene of Karate Kid 2. Well, yeah, right. Well, there's that scene, but then the very well aside from the montage talking about the first movie, do you feel that the beginning of part 2 should have been at the end of part one because you were there to experience it more as it happened. I kind of fell in kind of awkwardly into the series. Do you think what we saw at the beginning of part two should have been at the end of part one, or do you like how it, it is with the whole right out after the All-Valley Tournament? Okay, let's let's talk about that for people who may not have seen this movie in a while or have never seen it before because that's a really interesting question. So what we'll, we'll delve right into the movie here. The first... The opening part of Karate Kid 2 is really a recap of the entire first movie. They recap the whole movie during the opening credits. It's like, previously on the Karate Kid. And they show everything up to the Daniel winning a tournament over the evil Cobra Kai. You got the evil sensei. His his students lose and get, they get embarrassed at the end. So that's the end of, that's the opening credits of part two. And so, Mike, why don't you explain the actual first scene of the movie? Because it's really interesting. Yeah, you're talking about the fight outside where... The, the the referee and the guy running the tournament are, you know, congratulating Daniel. He He's outside after taking a shower, which is kind of creepy. Miyagi's up in the shower, like, way too much. and <laughs> But they're outside, and then the, the, the Cobra Kai leader, John Kreese, comes out and is acting like a total dick. You know, says some racial stuff to two random black guys. It reminds me of our top secret discussion where there's just two random black guys at the beginning and then he goes over and attacks his students for coming in second breaks the trophy and he's beaten up on johnny and mr miyagi comes to save the day and is showing some new technique that'll be important in part two and john crease punches out two people's car windows because he's a dumbass he just wants to try to fight mr miyagi and he bloodies his hand and Mr. Miyagi looks like he's going to go beat the shit out of John Kreese, Sensei Kreese, and he goes in for the hit and honks his nose and just really embarrasses him, and then they walk away, and that's the that's the opening scene to Karate Kid 2. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The horrible villain, Johnny, William Zabka in the first Karate Kid movie, at the start of this one is choked out by his own coach. Like, Kreese goes there and chokes out Johnny, and he's going to kill him. Like, it looks like he's going to kill John Lawrence of the Cobra Kai. And Miyagi goes over and tells him to stop it, and, and uh, Kreese is like, like, what are you going to do about it, Slope? And I love that he always pulls out Slope. Yeah, that I, I made a note of that for sure, yeah. Well, in part three, they start throwing that word around very liberally. And it's not a word I think anybody has used in, like, 40 years, so I'm not sure why that racial slur is the one that the writer fixated on. Yeah, but it's pretty that it's it's pretty offensive, and it is worse in the next one. But yeah, I uh, I will I will have a horrible joke here, but I have you know what riff tracks is right? Oh yeah, they they make fun of uh, the Karate Kid three, and they're joking about how often that racial slur is used in part three, and they say this movie has more slopes than Aspen, which I always thought that was a great joke. So I'll just throw that in there. I like it, and it's true. <laughs> yeah, so so Miyagi tells Kreese not to beat up his own kids, and Kreese starts punching at Miyagi, trying to hurt him, 
And this is a really fun scene. I really loved it, but it is the question, should this have been the end of part one or should it have been in part two? And again, this is the age-old question that historians have puzzled over for years. What do you think? Should Miyagi's revenge against Kreese been in this one or in the first one? I personally think it should be in the second one. I think it would have ruined the pacing of the first one. But I'm curious on your thoughts here. Well, I think part one ends so abruptly with like the jumps, you know, Miyagi shot, then it's just kind of over. I think they could have done it because I think it, the the tone of the tone of part two is just so different than part one. So I think it kind of makes sense there. But it's also about redemption in part two and the technique that Miyagi's showing him that he needs to use later. So I get why it's in part two. I would have just preferred it in part in part one or part of it in part one and maybe part in part two. I don't know. Or reimagining in part two like we see – See it from one perspective and maybe a, a different presentation in part two. All right, here's a little fun fact. You probably already know this, but some of the listeners won't, is that that scene where Chris tries to punch Miyagi and breaks his hands against the car windows was originally in the script for part one, and they, they just decided not to film it. Interesting. And a lot of people think when you see it in part two, it looks like it's old footage from part one. They just recycled and threw into this one. But it's actually not. It's actually all new shot footage based on a scene from the script of the first movie. You can sense that a little because it, it's weird how mouthy Dutch is in the first one. <laughs> and I don't know if Chad McQueen was even in part two, but he's like wearing a hat and he keeps looking the wrong way. So I don't know if that's like a <laughs> – like the what the uh, Crispin Glover body double sequel thing. I don't know if that's even Dutch in Karate Kid too. You know what I'm talking about? He's like wearing a hat. He's like not looking. Like everyone's the same role from the first one, pretty much. Johnny's sort of the same, and uh, is it? Oh shoot, Bobby. Tommy, Bobby and Tommy. The Tommy. Like get him a body bag, kids. Like you know, respect. Like listen to Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi. And it's such a stilted line, too. It's just a uh, Tommy, the get him a body bag guy. He's like, listen to Mr. Miyagi. It's just, it's such a weirdly said sentence. Kind of like I just weirdly said a sentence. Like Bobby should have said that or the other, the brown haired guy, Jimmy or whatever his name is. Or the replacement Dutch, the non-speaking Dutch. Yeah, I don't know where what French or uh, European country this fake guy's from, but um, yeah. Yeah, so there's the scene at the beginning of Karate Kid 2 when Miyagi embarrasses Sensei Kreese out in the parking lot, and it really is literally right after the first movie ends. So it's, I mean, it's funny for a sequel that has almost nothing to do with the first one how seamlessly they tie one and two together. But the interesting thing about it is that Miyagi demonstrates this thing at the end. He's going to, like, Kreese is down on his knees. He's got two broken hands. And Miyagi has a chance to kill him. And Daniel's like, oh, my God, my karate teacher, who is against all violence, is going to kill this guy in cold blood. But instead, we see the, the whimsical side of Mr. Miyagi as he does a karate chop toward Kreese's head, then stops at the last minute and honks his nose with a big comical honk. Yes, so, but that's but that's important because that will be paid off later in the movie. So that's what's important here. A lot of setup there, yeah. Even the montage of part one, because they show one of the uh, right after that is that when uh, Mr. Miyagi catches the fly with the chopsticks, or is that I'm trying I don't want to get my continuity. Yeah, we're in part two. That's where Miyagi finally catches the fly in part two. Oh, and then they show Daniel doing that in the montage, and then Mr. Miyagi does. Because this is all, part two is all Mr. Miyagi. 
It really is. That's the thing I really... Both of us want to get across to people. This is a Mr. Miyagi movie with Daniel as a side character. And I argue the Daniel scenes aren't even important to the movie. Like, I just watched the Mr. Miyagi story, and I kind of zone out in the Daniel stuff. In fact, I wouldn't even care about the Daniel stuff, except he's courting Kumiko, who is my dream girl. So I'm conflicted, but it's really the Mr. Miyagi story. Sure. All right, so let's jump ahead to the actual silliness of the plot we talked about earlier. So... Daniel won the All-Valley Karate Tournament in November of 85, I believe. And the timeline adds up here because they say six months later, and we jump ahead, and Daniel is coming back from the prom. And that actually would have been six months after November. So, you know, kudos to the uh, continuity people. They actually matched the dates right. They did a good job. Yeah, I thought that was good. And he's, you know, the car's trashed. He's coming back all frustrated and agitated and... Yeah. Now, why? Why would Daniel be agitated as he drives into Mr. Miyagi's lot with a car that's on fire and Ralph Macchio doing the insane fast talking that he's going to fall into in part three? What? Why would he be upset here? Well, Allie broke up with him and mom's going to Fresno and he has to go with her and he's super pissed because I guess the worst place to spend any time is Fresno. You're from California. I don't I don't get that as much as a Californian would. I've been to Fresno, and that story checks out. I would not want to be in Fresno. Yeah, that makes sense. But he's super agitated. He's, you know, it's the end. Of, he's, we presume it's the end of his, uh, I would guess, he's under 18, so I guess it was the end of his senior year. So it's kind of a, you know, end of time. He's going to go to college, and he's getting excited for that, so... Yeah, so, like I said, this is, as they would say on Mystery Science Theater, Plot Convenience Playhouse. In one sentence, we have written Elizabeth Shue out of the movie when Daniel says, Oh, Allie left me for a football player. And then he says, My mom's getting transferred to Fresno, and we leave tomorrow. Which does not happen in the real world. Nobody gets transferred on that short of notice. You, you yourself, like you said, you work in HR, right? Uh, I work in, as a college administrator, so I, I, you have to give like three weeks notice to do anything in my job. So it wouldn't be tomorrow you're moving to Fresno. That would, I mean, that would really suck for me. But uh. <laughs> yeah, so, It's like, well, alrighty then. So I guess that's the story that Daniel's mom and is leaving the movie and she's going. And this is what I love about this is that Mr. Miyagi has Daniel build a little guest house out in the backyard. And he says, oh, I'm taking a new guest from Fresno. Yeah, refugee from Fresno. He's like, who's this for? Yeah. Daniel is now being invited to stay at Mr. Miyagi's house. And this is how I love they describe it in the movie where Miyagi says, I talked to your mother last night. She say it's okay. I'm like, why did the mom not talk to Daniel about this? <laughs> why? Did, well, I'm just going to talk to the creepy maintenance guy. Yeah, the plot point of you wouldn't, the mom wouldn't talk to the kid or vice versa. I'm going to go live with the former handyman who... <laughs> Where we used to live, like, that's like a different Strokes vibe there. You gotta, like, come on. Is that Gordon Jump? He's the uh, the guy that runs the bicycle store? Here, Dudley, let's take some pictures. That was like, what's going on here? He's always running around in tank tops and shower scenes, so I don't know. Yeah, well, I've seen articles written about that over the years, the homoerotic tones between Miyagi and Daniel-san that get rather strange at certain times in the franchise. Like, three, it's the worst, but two... There's some weird ones, too, where, you know, you're the only thing that's important to me, Mr. Mr. Miyagi, and Miyagi takes him in, and it's all kind of creepy. Like you said, Miyagi's right there outside the shower at the start, at the beginning of the movie. Very, very creepy stuff. <laughs> yes, but, so, 
the mom is going to Fresno and she is going to leave her son here with the, the handyman. Yet she does not talk about it with her son. They do not have any contact whatsoever. It's all through Miyagi. So I'm just pointing out the goofiness of that. And that will come up again in a second. Voiceover or anything. It's just like, yeah, I talked to your mom on the phone. She's cool. Like we can't even like have her do audio on this movie. That can't cause that much. I mean. So wonderful. Whoever wrote that part of the script, I'm enjoy. I enjoy the fact that you had the balls to throw in that plot line right there. So Miyagi receives a letter as Daniel's getting ready to move into his house with him and be his little houseboy for the summer. Miyagi receives a letter that he is to go to Okinawa because his father is dying. And Daniel's first response is, oh, my God, Miyagi's like 80. How could he have a father? But he does. Apparently, he's still alive. First time I saw it, that was my first reaction. Every time I see it again, I'm like, I'm not sure how old Mr. Miyagi is. And Mr. Miyagi Sr. has got to be at least 15 to 20 years older than Mr. Miyagi Jr. So, <laughs> Well, you know, with all the hardships Miyagi has faced in life, he's probably like 35, but it's like a hard 35. Yeah, that could be the case. And I like the mailman comes in with the world's smallest clipboard i don't know if that was the standard mailman clipboard in the 80s but it's like the smallest clipboard i've ever seen i I like it but it's just weird they spent so much money on the salaries for machio and marita that's all they could afford the 99 cent clipboard or the full-size clipboard (laughs) so miyagi has to go back to okinawa and daniel's you know shit out of luck of staying and being a houseboy all summer and this is where we learn the incredibly tragic backstory of mr miyagi um, I'll, I'll give you the honors on this one, Mike. So Miyagi is going back home and there's a couple things waiting for him back in Okinawa. What would they be? Well, the first thing was he was, um, I hope I don't mess this up for his, uh, childhood sweetheart, Yuki. He was in love with her, but she was betrothed to Sato and they were also Miyagi and Sato were, uh, both students for Miyagi's dad, which is atypical in Okinawan culture. So there's all that going on, and they were. What happened was they were they were gonna try to get married, and Sato wanted to fight him to uh, you know protect his honor because he was supposed to become Yuki's husband. Yeah, he was mowing Sato's lawn. You don't do that. That's not the way you do it, even in Okinawa. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, Miyagi and Sato were best friends, and Sato had an arranged marriage. Miyagi moved in on Sato's girlfriend. Maybe Miyagi wasn't the good guy here. We're not sure. We're not going to point fingers, but he and Yuki were going to get married. Sato was upset that Miyagi had challenged his honor and taken his girl. And so Sato challenged him to a fight, which in Okinawa means to the death. There's no such thing as points. And Miyagi, in fitting with a man who is nonviolent, fled the country like a little bitch and went to America. And he's not been home since. And apparently Yuki still was keeping tabs on him somehow. But yeah, Yeah. I don't know how she was doing that. But yeah, she she wasn't connected. And they I, I love when they're getting ready to go. She gets the information. He's trying to get out there to deal with it. And Miyagi gets a one-day passport. Like, <laughs> like that. so many plot points to make this work. We don't even know if Daniel has a passport or why he has a passport, but he is able to go too. Daniel's too poor to leave the country. There's no way he had a passport and he could have gone to Japan. There's no way. It's from Reseda. I mean, not uh, the other – uh, neighborhood where all the rich people would have passports. Maybe his mom drove him to Okinawa in the family truckster, like in the first movie. 
It'll push it down the hill, and then it'll, the truckster will start. <laughs> okay, so we learn all this stuff about Miyagi's horrible, tragic history that he left the girl he loved behind. He went here. He can't go back because some guy's going to kill him. Um, and we find out, you know, I, Miyagi no believe in fighting, and Daniel's trying to wrap his head around this. How You know karate. You love this girl. Why didn't you stay? And Miyagi's like, well, you know, I was young. I, I didn't want to upset the village. We lived in a very small village. Everybody knew each other, and... He has a theory here, which is very important, where Miyagi says, never put passion before principle, even if when you lose, which I have to point out, it is exactly like Rosie Perez's quote in White Man Can't Jump. So Miyagi was a little ahead of the game here. I like that. I missed that. So you've seen it more than I have. So I think that's a great quote. And we learned that in Okinawa, honor has no time limit. Like, you can be still fighting for the shame that you felt 45 years ago. Honor is very serious. So here's the, here's the crux of this movie, and we, we've rushed through it very quickly, and we've written out every character from the first movie. So Miyagi is going to go back to Japan to honor his dying father and maybe meet up with the woman he left 45 years ago. And suddenly, Daniel says, I'm, Daniel just shows up at the airport, right? He's going to join him. Yeah, he's about to leave, and you see Daniel show up. Like, is he saying goodbye because it's pre-9-11, so you go right up to the gate? And, like, is he just saying bye? But he's like, I'm going with you. Coming with you to Okinawa. And he's like, how can you afford it? And he's like, I'm going to wait to go to college later. Yeah, and here, once again, the negligent parent styles of Mrs. LaRusso, where Daniel just runs up to Mr. Miyagi as he's boarding the plane and says, I'm going to Okinawa with you. Mom said it was okay. Again, mom did not call Mr. Miyagi to mention this. She just left her son at the airport and drove off. So Mrs. LaRusso is a crappy mother. For sure. And and they they both get last-minute seats, but they're right next to each other. <laughs> and there's more of your homoerotic. There's, there's, in their row, it's the window is Daniel, the middle is Mr. Miyagi, and the aisle is nobody. And I don't, that's just not for a camera shot. They need to be right next to each other all the way out to Okinawa. Yeah, I believe urinal, urinal rules are in effect here, that if there's a space in the middle, you leave it there. You don't cram up against each other. Absolutely. There's a code and ethics to that. And he does say, Daniel does say, Mr. Miyagi, you're the most important thing in my life. You're more important than college. So, again, we're, we're, we're getting a little odd here with this relationship, but we'll just go with it for now, okay? Sure. Okay, so they fly to Okinawa. And this is where Daniel has, of course, bought a book. He or read a, took a book from the library about Okinawan history, and he's reading up. So apparently, by the time they get there, he knows everything about the history of Okinawa, which is impressive for his his uh, re- retention skills. Yeah, his cognition. Yeah, that seems pretty high end for Daniel. <laughs> yes, that's how he learned karate was from a book until he met Mr. Miyagi. So that's how he learned about Okinawa. Yeah, but remember, he sucked at karate from a book, so I don't think he read the book right. That's why I had to go to Okinawa to really learn the real story. Okay, so we go to Miyagi, we go to Okinawa, and we are going to this little tiny fishing village, Tomi Village, and Miyagi and uh, Daniel get off the plane, and there's a big poster in the airport when they get there, and it's of Sato, his the guy that's going to kill Miyagi. Oh boy, cookie jar! He's like apparently the richest guy on the island now. He owns a karate dojo. He, like, trains soldiers in military hand-to-hand combat. And I don't know if you missed this, but if you look off to the side, he also runs an escort service. They have the Sato Escort Service sign, too. No joke. 
Which is weird. It's not his surname. It's it's his first name. I would think it would be his his last name, not Sato's. Everything. I don't know if that's is that an Asian thing or I just found it interesting on the rewatch recently that you know everything's Sato, not his last name. Maybe it's like a trademark, like Ichiro. Maybe he just has one name. Maybe maybe that's it. Also, I wonder how they can have an escort service in Tomi Village, considering there's only like forty people in the town. Like, wouldn't you know everybody already? I don't know why you'd need an escort service. It seems unnecessary. Maybe it's for the gigantic city that's trapped in the 50s that they go to later. I don't know. So right off the bat, Miyagi and Daniel-san are picked up at the airport by this strange driver, this young man named Chosen, who says, Oh, everybody knows you're coming back to Okinawa, Mr. Miyagi. I will drive you. And so stupidly they get in the car and okay, here's the part, the thing I have to point out about this, Mike, is that Daniel LaRusso has got to be one of the most irritating characters in movie history because every time he shows up in a new place, someone immediately hates him and wants to hurt him. It's like uncanny. Right from the start, this karate guy chosen shakes Daniel's hand and does the does the old handshake of death while he's gripping it as hard as he can and glaring at him. So right off the bat, this guy hates Daniel immediately. Which is weird because it doesn't – unless Sato's so – he just – I don't know why he hates Daniel so much and Mr. Miyagi unless he just heard all these stories since he's a little kid. It just – he's such a dick right from the jump and it makes no sense and he's super annoying. He's like almost as annoying as Terry Silver in part, in part three even laughs a little like him so it's crazy. I like to think that even in Okinawa they've heard of Reseda. And they're like, oh, you're that little dick from Mercedes. So they instantly hate Daniel anywhere he goes on the planet, which you think I'm exaggerating, but that's literally the plot of every Karate Kid movie. Daniel shows up and is immediately hated by everyone. So it even fits the pattern here on Tomi Village. Absolutely. So Miyagi and Daniel-san are driven in this car, and they're dropped off into a warehouse. And this is where Sato, the big ex-best friend, killer karate man, martial arts expert comes out, and it's uh, this guy, what is his name, the actor's name? Uh, Danny Kamakona. Danny Kamakona comes out and immediately launches into his cookie monster voice, where he's like, Miyagi, cookie. <laughs> he will do this. This will be every line he does through the entire movie. It is some variant of, coward, or you run, or you have no honor. So yeah, so Sato comes out, coward, you return, and Sato wants to fight right there on the spot, and Miyagi's like, dude, my dad's dying, I'm not going to fight you here in the warehouse, and Sato's like, okay, you pay respect, and then we fight, and Miyagi's like, okay, whatever, so anyway, the, the ground rules have been laid down, the minute they get to Okinawa, you can go bury your father, and then I kill you. He's a he's a robotic almost, with his bloodlust for Miyagi, and... His bloodlust for wearing sunglasses where he shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> he walks in from being outside into a dark hangar with sunglasses on because he's such a 80s badass villain. So is he basically the Corey Hart of Tomy Village? Sunglasses at night? I believe he does. He wears them all the time, night, day, whatever. So he's the richest guy in town. He runs the escort service. He does all the military hand-to-hand combat training, and he's a pop star. The Sato guy is amazing. And he tries to karate chop telephone poles for some reason. I, I don't know why he does that. We'll get to that. That's a great scene. That's in the backyard, right? Where they're trying to cut down the tree. 
Yeah, it's just just gigantic log. He's just been hidden for since Miyagi split down. He just keeps trying to break the log, and I don't know why. The futility of Sato, we will learn later. He's got a giant board of wood in his backyard. He's trying to cut through with his hand for 45 years, and he's barely even scratched it. Like, go to Lowe's and buy a chainsaw or something. You're rich. Just, I mean, it's very inefficient. You use a chainsaw, coward! Yeah, C is for chainsaw, so there you go. <laughs> Let's think of other things that start with C. Miyagi has entered Okinawa. He has learned the stakes that he is going to be killed after he buries his father. And then we go to his house and we meet all the women. And like I said, this is where the emotional center of this movie really is. It's not even a Daniel movie. It's Miyagi, where we meet Yuki, played again by Nobu McCarthy, really very acclaimed Asian actress. And we meet her her niece Kumiko who is played by again Tamlin Tomida and I'm going to quote the great Wayne Campbell here Schwang she's definitely Schwang for sure yeah I would agree with that and I can say that because even though she's like 18 in the movie I was 12 when I saw this so it's perfectly cool for me to say that about an 18 year old so I I, I have legally uh, absolved myself of all problems there I agree I had gotten a fight about another movie with that i'm like yeah when that person was 14 and i was eight when the movie came out so shut up so totally cool i uh, totally understand i've consulted with lawyers about this well they weren't sato's lawyers but okay <laughs> so we go inside and this is where yuki's there and she meets miyagi and they have a very tender reunion and we find out you know she she never married she waited for him and she's still I mean, she's like 60 years old. She's still pretty hot. She looks pretty good, and they still have the hots for each other, and it's very sweet. And and like you said, somehow she always knew where he was. She was like keeping tabs on Miyagi all these years. So one would presume that she knows about his wife and kid, World <laughs> War II, and she's still keeping tabs and didn't leave Okinawa to go be with him. It's just the what could have been Karate Kid two and a half. Like what you know, what could have happened. Well, I'm just wondering how she would know his address. Like, did they have the internet super early in Tomi Village and before the rest of the world? I, I don't know how she found that out. Maybe that was a deleted scene. I'm not sure. So anyway, the Miyagi goes and visits his father, and there's this old man dying on a bed, and he sees Miyagi there, and he has a great quote that he says, you know, if I am dreaming, let me never awake. If I'm awake, let me never sleep again. That's a great quote. All right, so let's go to the first day in Japan. This is Daniel-san Daniel -san trying to acclimate to Tomi Village in Okinawa, and this is where Daniel talks to Yuki, and then he goes and trains. Like, Miyagi has his dojo, his family's dojo there. So with all, it's got, like, all these tapestries and posters and paintings of, like, all his ancestors going back 400 years. Like, it's, it's pretty cool. It's neat, and he talks about where the Miyagis were all fishermen and one of them got drunk and went to the mainland and then came back with karate, which is just <laughs> more convenience by the writer. So karate almost sounds like an STD at that point. Oh, he went there and came back with karate. Sato's uh, escort service. He came back with karate <laughs> instead of the clap. Yeah. And speaking of the clap, this is where we learn the secret of all Miyagi family karate, which is this little drum that you spin back and forth with your hands and it kind of claps against the... It's got these little balls on the side that clap against the, the drum as you turn it. And Miyagi's like, this is the secret to all Miyagi family karate. And Daniel's like, "What's why? How does it work? And Miyagi's like, oh, you'll see. 
So there will be a payoff payoff later in the movie. This is the equivalent of the crane technique in Karate Kid Part Two. And was this the same scene where they talk about the rules of the Miyagi Dojo? Oh yeah, yeah. The, what are that? What are they? The first, where is it? The first rule is karate is for defense only. Uh, or rule number one, karate is for defense only. Rule number two, read the first rule. Like. Like, why even make a rule two then? Just have just one big banner of rule one. Why they waste time to say see rule one? So, so all Miyagi's are fishermen, and they know karate, and they're all comedians apparently. I guess so. Although, interestingly enough, rule three is profit. So the underpants gnomes in South Park actually stole from the Miyagi family dojo. <laughs> Touche. Maybe they did. Okay, so Daniel and Miyagi walk into town, and this is where they go and explore Okinawa. And I have to give a quick shout-out here to the setting in this movie. This movie was filmed in Hawaii. It's not actually filmed in Japan or Okinawa, but it's really well done. You would have no idea it's not Japan. I would say it's like, I didn't even know that until like a year ago. This wasn't filmed in, in Japan. Yeah, I saw that on the research, and it's it's amazing how it looks like it's Japan, and the production design's great, the sets are... Everything looks it looks good. It looks like you're over there. It doesn't look like like a soundstage or anything. Okay, so they're walking through the town on their first day, and here comes Sato. And this will be a running joke through the movie: is that nobody can go outside without Sato or his nephew Chosen showing up to harass you. They're everywhere in that place. Wherever they yeah, wherever they go, they're there. Well, that's the thing. People make fun of part three with Terry Silver being this billionaire and just having apparently nothing better to do than harass a teenage kid. But like Sato's just as bad. He's the richest man in Okinawa, yet he has nothing to do with his businesses more important than showing up to harass Miyagi every five minutes. He's got a vendetta. He knows what he's doing. So Miyagi gets confronted by Sato. Sato confronts them in the middle of town, drives up and says, We fight now! And Miyagi's like, no, I'm not going to fight you. And Sato starts pulling back. Like, he's literally going to kill Mr. Miyagi right there in Tomi Village. But all of a sudden, uh, who comes running up? Yuki or uh, someone comes running up? It might up. be Kamiko. I, I, it's one of the two comes and, and snags Miyagi. I think it's Kami, Kamuko. And... It's got to be her because she was younger. They wouldn't send the old woman running down the street. But to go get both of He wants to talk to both of them and they go to the dad. Mr. Miyagi Sr.'s deathbed. Yeah, like I said, we've been making fun of this movie and the little goofy details, but it's very moving and emotional once you hit this part of the movie here where Mr. Miyagi, Sr. Miyagi, dies. But before he dies, he takes Sato and Miyagi and puts their hands on top of each other so they're holding hands, basically showing them, I want you two to make peace before I die. And so he dies right there after he's, you know, thinks he's made peace, but afterwards Sato's like, I still gonna kill you. I'll let you mourn three days because of my my teacher. Like uh, that's my dad, asshole. Like it's your teacher, but it's my dad. So. Yeah. So Sato, ever the sportsman. This is like giving a like a a deer a head start before you go out and track it in the woods. Sato will give Miyagi three days to mourn and bury his dead father, and then I will I will hunt you down like a dog and kill you in the streets, coward. Just standard three-day bereavement. It's a cross-culture thing. Yeah, industry standard. So then we get a very touching funeral scene where the entire village goes down and they put these paper lanterns out to see in honor of Mr. Miyagi dying. And and they have, like, like they all wear, like, 
matching morning like pajamas? Everyone's in black except for the kids, except for Sato is wearing a gray suit. I don't know what – he just wants to F you everybody all the time. Like why can't you wear the black outfit like every other older person in the city? I just noticed that tonight. Did he have the sunglasses on though? He did have sunglasses on and a gray suit and everyone else is wearing black unless you're younger and then they think they were wearing white. So, yeah. Okay, and and there's not much karate in this movie. It's really not as karate and training heavy as the first one. It's really more about Mr. Miyagi's journey. But there's one training montage right here where Mr. Miyagi takes Daniel out to this old, uh, what is it, a uh, cannery where they used to can fish. Yeah, I think they hard. Yeah, where they did the fish. Yeah, yeah. Like this is where I took Yuki on my first date. I'm like, oh, sweet talker Miyagi taking her to the cannery. Seems fishy to me, but that's where he went. (laughs) So, uh, and basically they have this thing at the cannery, this big spike that you could pick up baskets of fish with, and Miyagi shows Daniel how he used to train there, and and he drops this spike from like this big height, and it comes swinging down, and it almost hits Daniel, and it's basically an attempt to teach you that the best way to defend a punch is not to be there. So when something's coming at you, just swing to the side, and it's the best way to avoid any kind of damage. So it seems very simple in retrospect, but again, most of Miyagi's training tactics were. And although to point out to uh, give Miyagi a little credit here, he's not actually making Daniel do manual labor. So Daniel's actually learning something without putting in any effort here. Yeah, any farming he does has no correlation to karate. So yeah, I think he helps briefly, but yeah, there's no training techniques learned. Okay, so now we're going to get into the real storyline of the movie here, now that the father's out of the way, that Daniel is going to immediately set out to make enemies that hate him as quickly as he can, which is the Ralph Macchio way. This is what he does in every movie. He's good at that, wherever, yeah, he, every movie he's doing stuff like that, killing soches, stealing tuna fish, yeah, that's his modus operandi, is just being a jerk. So we have a scene where Miyagi and Yuki are now falling in love again. They're having a little tea ceremony, and they're having all these little cute moments. And again, very touching scene and very well acted by two very good actors. But in the background, we have Daniel wandering the streets of of Okinawa like a douche, just walking around, you know, not fitting in. And he sees Chosen, Sato's nephew, is running like a little fruit and vegetable stand where he he, he pays people for their produce. And Daniel immediately realizes that Sato is cheating everyone, calls him out, and embarrasses him in front of the entire village, which is not a good move in Okinawa, where honor is key. Well, yeah, I think it wasn't in... He didn't go out... I mean, he's been douchey in this movie and other ones, but I guess that old dude that's playing the Okinawa guitar was needing help carrying stuff over, and then he just kind of fell apart. So I don't think he went in there with malicious intent, but as soon as he, you know upset the apple card, then he's breaking the weights, then he acts like a douche. But yeah, I don't think it was intentionally to be a douche. There's other stuff later in this movie where Daniel will, like, repeatedly ignore warnings. Like, they'll be in the, well, well, okay, well, we'll skip to it, but Kim Kumiko will keep telling him, let's not do that, that's a bad idea. He's like, nah, let's do it anyway. So, at a certain point, you kind of got to blame Daniel for some of his problems. He's not a bright child. He's not, he's a, he doesn't know what he needs to do. All right, so... So uh, Daniel has embarrassed Chosen, and they get in a little scuffle where Chosen kicks him in the stomach, and he says, you insult my honor again, and I kill you. And Daniel's like, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. But, hey, spoiler, it will happen. Yes, he will try. 
All right, but here we go into the emotional core of the movie, the Daniel and Kumiko scenes where they've been hanging out in the village, they've been getting to know each other, and they kind of like each other, and they kind of go on their first date here. They go sightseeing. This is the glory of love montage, right? It's the most 80s part of this movie, I think, besides the montages at the beginning. Yeah, this it just seems so out of place, the song and everything. It just doesn't go with the music at all. Wait a minute. Uh, you, you say the movie, the song does not fit the movie. I, I should point out, my friend, the song Glory of Love was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song. That's great that it was nominated for that award, but it just seems like it was shoehorned in the middle of the movie to me. But Now, what do you think they should have been doing to this movie? Like going around Chicago? The, group, the group's name is Chicago, so you think they should have been in Chicago maybe? They needed some of that 50s music from about half an hour later where apparently the, they love the 1950s. It's Every time we get on one of these podcasts, the dates are a little skewed with what they should be doing. Okay, yeah, here's the montage with Daniel and Kumiko falling in love. They're, they go down to, like, the beach, and they run around on the rocks. And, again, the Peter Cetera song, Glory of Love, is playing. Very iconic scene from the 80s. You know, I'd almost argue it's almost as iconic as any of the scenes in the first Karate Kid movie. And uh, they're just running around and flirting and having fun. And she she races him to this castle. There's like an old abandoned castle that used to be the center of Tomi Village, but now Sato owns it. And it's all abandoned and she's showing it off. So it's a, their little day of fun down by the beach. It's a great scene, though. I like it. The, their budding romance. So the entire day is Daniel and Kumiko hanging out in Okinawa and finding stuff to do. And then they go back into town and she explains her dream. She wants to be a ballerina. She wants to be a professional dancer. And he's like, well, you can't do that here. She's like, yeah, no shit. He's like, why don't you come to America? She's like, well, I can't afford it. So it's this big issue that she wants to be a dancer, but she doesn't have the, uh, the money to leave. And this is where we see the dojo. This is the, the scene I was talking about where they see Sato's dojo, the main villain of the movie, where his nephew teaches people how to kill everyone inside. And Kumiko's like, oh, don't go over there. That's Sato's dojo. And Daniel's like, nah, I think I'm going to go check that out. <laughs> Which, again, screw you, Daniel, you moron. Two movies, two dojos, just rolling up where he shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. Daniel's like Clark Griswold, repeatedly driving into East St. Louis and asking for directions. And eventually he's going to get his ass kicked. Yes. So, so he watches Sato, uh, he watches Chosen training all these military police how to kill people. It's like, okay, let's go over here. And, and he's like, what's this place? And, and Kumiko's like, oh, that's a bar. It's a very dangerous place. Don't go in there. And he's like, let's go in here. <laughs> it's so dangerous. It's the bar where they break ice. Like, <laughs> well, that's the number one crime in Okinawa, icebreakers. I just don't – I. it's just so weird of a scene. I get the karate connotation, but how do they keep the ice cold? Why are these guys standing around breaking ice? I don't – it's just a, it's a weird place, Okinawa. I want to go. It's just interesting. You know, Mike, there wasn't a lot to do in the 80s, so this is kind of the only entertainment we had, if I recall. I, I'm, I'm younger than you. I don't remember the, the great ice breaking of 1986. <laughs> That's all we did. We were break dancing and ice breaking. It was gr good times. So anyway, yeah, in this bar, there's a bunch of military guys breaking ice. And it's like all Caucasians and black dudes. It's like, wait, where, where do we get all these people from Okinawa? Then you remember, oh, yeah, it's a military base. That's why there's no Japanese people in here. But it's just dudes breaking ice with the karate chops. 
which apparently is like the number one spectator sport in Tomi Village somehow. And then Daniel amazingly starts running his mouth at some of the servicemen and gets in this whole predicament where he's got to break ice. Yeah, okay. This is the scene. I saw this movie in the theater with my dad. My dad was laughing so hard at this scene with the unintentional comedy. And I'll just kind of lay it out for people that Daniel's watching all these GIs trying to break ice and they don't know how to do it. So Daniel starts loudly mansplaining to everybody how they're doing it wrong. And they're like, how about you do it? And Daniel's like, well, okay. So Daniel walks up and all of a sudden out of the back pops Chosen, the guy who was just training people in the dojo two minutes ago. He just randomly pops up in the background. Because the hatted henchman saw him come into the bar, whatever, whichever one that guy is. I did. I've been so racist and stereotypical, but I don't know which unknown henchman does it. It's either Toshio or Taro. I, I'm not sure which one, but they saw him come in and every, you know, Sato's ready because he's like across the street and everyone's ready to swarm into the icebreaker bar. I like to think it was Taro. It seems like a very Taro move. Definitely not a Toshio situation. Yeah, Toshio was more for the finesse game. Taro was for the muscle. Okay. Yeah, so, so Chosen just randomly appears and says, no, you don't break two pieces of ice. You break six. Ha, 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 ha. And Daniel's like, no way, man. And like, and so Chosen says, no, I put up the money. I put up odds. You're going to break six in front of everybody. And Daniel's like, I can't do that, man. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi just shows up for no apparent reason, just pops up in the background exactly where Chosen was there a second ago. And they go through this whole kerfuffle where Mr. Miyagi will pay for Daniel and cover him in the bet. And then as they're getting ready to go, then Sato just randomly pops up. Like every major character in the movie is apparently in this bar with a two-minute stretch. I was waiting for the Cobra Kai guys to show up too, but they I guess they couldn't get flights out or passports. <laughs> yeah. So you see Dutch, just a uh, uh, Chad McQueen. Turning around and not paying attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Terry Silver randomly pops in there. <laughs> I'm the CEO of Sludge Co. Ha ha ha. Yeah, so this is just a very humorous scene with all these characters randomly popping in in intervals in, this, in the same ice bar. And so basically what happens is Miyagi bets $600 that Daniel will break all the ice. Daniel, you know, has to focus and breathe, and he does it. Somehow he smashes all six blocks of ice. Miyagi wins the money, and, and Sato and Chosen have been humiliated. They lost all their money in the bet, which another good tactic to humiliate Chosen in Okinawa. Good job, Daniel. Yeah, and he got three to one odds just because all these people are always got to be so tough with everything. So it costs Sato not six hundred bucks, but eighteen hundred bucks. So okay, so Sato's plan of revenge is not working out. Chosen's hatred of Daniel is growing and growing, and it's only going to get worse now because now Chosen and Sato start showing up at Miyagi's house and destroying it because they've the three day grace period is over. They will now. It's now it's time for fighting time. Like now we fight, and Miyagi's like, "No, I'm not going to fight." And so their recourse is they'll just destroy his house, they'll destroy his garden, they'll vandalize the property. They're just going to do whatever they can to force him to fight Sato. I'm going to honor my sensei by not doing this three days ago, but now I'm going to have you stab pictures of his ancestors and rip up important things inside the dojo. Yeah, this this is the one scene where Miyagi actually gets to fight somebody in this movie. 
where all the bad guys chosen and all them are just vandalizing the Miyagi house and they're just being horrible people because well if you can't if you don't fight then we'll make you come to us and then Miyagi comes and basically lays out all the bad guys lays out chosen lays out his two uh, associates although there's a little trivia here Mike do you are you aware of the the uh, the spear bit of trivia here no please enlighten me I'm not at one point during this fight scene where Miyagi's taking on all the henchmen. Chosen actually hits him with the spear, the wooden part of the spear. He hits Miyagi in the back. That is the only time in all three or all four movies with Mr. Miyagi where he is at, where somebody actually lands a blow against him. Oh wow! I, that's I learned something this evening myself. Cool, I didn't know that. Yeah, so so uh, the Chosen wipes out the entire Miyagi family dojo, takes down all the tapestries, rips down all the walls. It's a very sad scene, and, and Miyagi. It, at this point, is like, you know, I'm over this. I'm done. I don't want to fight anybody. I just came here to meet Yuki. I just came here to make up with my dad and see him die. We're leaving, and they pack. And this is where Sato ups the asshole game a little bit. Yeah, I'm not just going to destroy your life. I'm going to try to destroy my where I grew up and my the town that I now own. Oh, no! Oh, Cookie's gone! What a... What precautions has he taken to make sure that Tomi Village will never exist again if Miyagi doesn't fight him? I thought he just pulled out a bulldozer and started to tear, just literally start tearing it all down in the middle of the day. Yeah, Sato's revenge knows no bounds. He will destroy the village. It will all be bulldozed. He has actually sold the land. I think he sold it to the U.S. government. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, he gets, so uh, if you do not fight me, Miyagi, every single person here in this village will be thrown out of town they'll be homeless it'll be all your fault and miyagi at this point is just like screw it fine we'll fight and sato's like yes good coward and miyagi's like you know one condition whoever wins this fight you leave the village here leave everybody here in one place and sato eventually agrees and so this is it. It's on like Donkey Kong at this point. Sato against Miyagi, the former best friends, to the death tonight. It's all it's all gearing up for this super showdown. It's like battle bots at this point. And to set up a great fighting battle, we have a tea scene. <laughs> okay, the yeah, the tea scene. My personal favorite scene in the movie because I think it's so beautiful. And again, for all the some of the goofy things in this movie, the emotional stuff is really well done. And I'll set it up. I'll let you describe it. But Miyagi knows he's probably going to die. Sato's going to kill him. He prepares his last will and testament. And then he goes to pray to get ready for the fight tonight. And as Daniel is walking back to the village, which probably his last night in Okinawa, he sees his girlfriend Kumiko kneeling down doing a little tea ceremony. And we saw these earlier in the film, right, Mike, the, the, between Yuki and Miyagi? We, yeah, we saw those between them. So then Daniel comes up and acts like an ass, and then Kamiko, you know, deals with it, and they have their own tea scene. And I guess he got to second tea base. I don't know, because he was – I guess that's a monumental scene in their culture, the, the tea and how you drink it and how you prepare it. So like Miyagi and Yuki, Kamiko did that with Daniel. Yeah, and this apparently is, it's very well researched. This is in, you know, Okinawan Japanese culture. This is how people would show love for each other. They, a man and a woman would share a tea ceremony together. And Kumiko, it's very ritualistic. It's very 
specific actions you have to do in order and she prepares the tea and she serves it to him and she takes down her hair and just absolutely gorgeous Tamlin Tomita. This is the scene that everybody falls in love with her where she prepares the, uh, the tea ceremony for Daniel and presents it to him and then uh, they kiss at the end and Music is so phenomenal. I could hum that for hours, That whatever that music is in that scene. And I won't ruin it by saying you could say she teabagged him in this scene. That would, that would definitely ruin the mood. Yeah, so I won't say that. So, yeah, but it, this is really a well-done scene. If you, if you haven't watched it in a while or you've never seen it, just uh, Google or YouTube and look for the Karate Kid 2 tea ceremony, and you will absolutely see why... Every single guy my age fell in love with Kumiko at a certain point. It's because of this scene. I'd like for her to make me some tea, but yeah, we'll see. No, you'd like Elizabeth Shue to make you some tea, you traitor. I'd like them both to make tea. <laughs> no, you've already chosen. Elizabeth Shue's making you your... I have chosen, that is correct. Yes. Your dumb Caucasian, you know, Van Nuys tea, and I'm drinking Kumiko's Japanese tea, which is way better. I'm kind of like a football player from UCLA, so it just made sense, but it's okay. I was just thinking, you're kind of like a football player from UCLA. Kind of. More than a kid from Reseda, for sure. <laughs> okay, so Kumiko and Daniel kiss, and like now we have dual love stories going on. We got Miyagi and Yuki, and we got uh, Kumiko and Daniel. But it's all going to go for naught because right in the middle of their kiss, all of a sudden, the worst storm in Okinawan history suddenly comes and hits their village. And, oh, my God, you know, it's a tropical storm. We live on the waterfront. We're going to get decimated. And, like, everybody in the town has to start running and screaming into this underground bunker because Tomi Village is about to be uh, decimated by a hurricane cock block. Now what starts with the letter C? And luckily, we're going to warn everyone by sending the smallest child up a tall pole to ring a bell. Well, they don't have the advanced technology, as you may see in the States, where you'd have an advanced warning system. This one, you pick the smallest kid, throw up an 800-foot tower, and have her ring a very precarious bell until she falls to her death. That's how they do it in Okinawa. <laughs> so, the entire village is running into this underground shelter. And again, it's a, very, it's a very scary and very emotional scene, this whole thing, where I feel like we're not really doing it justice, kind of mocking it, but it's, it's a neat scene where the entire village is fleeing and Daniel and Miyagi are going out there trying to help people. They see like a mother and a baby who are struggling and they help them get underground. And then Daniel wants to go save the girl in the bell tower. At a certain point, he will. But again, kind of a plot convenience playhouse that... It turns out Sato will not be able to fight Miyagi tonight because Sato was just crushed to death in his house when it fell on him. Yeah, there's amazingly a giant wooden pole over his body. Yeah. yeah, okay. Earlier in the movie, there was a running joke that there was a poster of Sato trying to chop a big log and uh, a board of wood, and Miyagi says, or Daniel says, can you do that, Miyagi? And Miyagi's like, don't know, never been attacked by tree. And then we go to Sato's house, and he's trying to karate chop this ancient piece of wood that he's been working on for 45 years. He's never made it through. And lo and behold, all that's going to come to a payoff because the only way to free Sato, who's trapped and dying, is that Miyagi must chop an entire board on top of him and free him. And Sato's so dense, he thinks Miyagi, who's not wanted to fight him the entire movie, is coming to fight him. Yeah, he knows. Which is stupid. Like, I, I wouldn't fight you at all, 
but you're about to die, so I'm going to come kill you under a giant log. Like, Sato's just an idiot. You coward, you only kill me when I'm trapped. And then Miyagi does not a very powerful chop and splits the piece of wood in two, and now magically, like, Christmas morning, Sato has dramatically changed his entire personality, and he loves Miyagi because he broke the big piece of wood. That apparently is the loophole in honor culture, that if you if you break somebody's honor, that there's no time limit, they will kill you at any point in the next 50 years, unless you find the loophole and you save their life. Now that Miyagi has saved Sato's life, they're best friends again, they're BFFs, all water under the bridge, and they're their buddies again. Oh boy, me so happy now! And they go back to the bunker, and then the girl is apparently very efficient at her job and wanted to make sure everyone was safe and kept ringing the bell in the middle of the typhoon cyclone. She needs to, she needs to be saved, and Daniel goes to try to save her, and Sato tells Chosen to join him, and what does Chosen do? Chosen wimps out like a little bitch and will not go up and save the little girl. So again, here's the, here's the image if you have not seen this movie in a while. The little girl... 500 feet up on a bell tower ringing ringing the hell out of that bell for the past half an hour I might add and all of a sudden her tower she's falling the tower is collapsing she needs someone to go save her Daniel rushes out and save her despite the fact that Daniel can't weigh more than about 10 pounds more than her Yes. but Chosen will not he does not do it because he's scared and Sato says you are dead to me you're lower than a dog which that's pretty bad yeah. <laughs> especially over there so Daniel goes up and saves a little girl, and it's a very emotional scene, very well done. Again, I feel bad we're kind of laughing about it, but yeah, so all is right in the world. Sato and Miyagi have made up, and the only problem now is Chosen has now been dishonored and disowned by Sato, his uncle, and now Chosen has a gripe with everybody in the village, which will pay off in the uh, at the end. But first, for first before we get there, Mike, Sato now has the great redemption. Yes. That's, uh, that's why I'm kind of a sucker for this movie that I love redemption stories that Sato is now the hero he was going to bulldoze the village yesterday and now he brings in his construction crew and rebuilds the entire village without his sunglasses yeah he's a totally different man and he's, he's one to you know live again so yeah and the, and the one thing here is that all throughout the movie Kumiko the girlfriend has been practicing she has this little dance she does and it's for this festival called the uh oban dance which will not surprise you to know is probably a real thing to mark robert mark common came in very well researched when he planned this movie that they're going to do this oban dance and she they do it every year and she's been practicing and and she through daniel asked sato she's like you know we have that abandoned castle we ran to back during the peter satara montage could we just have the the festival there that's what it should be and uh, sato says Yes, we will do it. It will be held in the castle now and forever. Cookie. Cookie, yes. And this sets up the rather unnecessary finale of the movie that really every plot has been resolved, that Miyagi and Yuki are back together. Sato has had his uh, his renaissance, his uh, redemption. He's back with Miyagi. It's all good. Tomi Village will be saved. But because the movie is called The Karate Kid Part 2, it must obligatorily end with Daniel. So now we're going to have Daniel fighting Chosen to the death at the Oban Festival. Yeah, he whips it on a zipline and is attacking him. And he's got each... First he tries to use his techniques from the prior movie to no success. 
Okay, so at the Oban Festival, Kumiko's doing a little dance. It's in the castle. The entire village is there in, in like, bathrobes or pajamas. They all their little dancing bathrobes. And Kumiko's doing her dance for everybody. It's a really sweet scene. And, like, the music in this movie is outstanding. It's all, like, Zamfir and stuff. Yes. And Chosen crashes the festival, pulls a knife to Kumiko's throat, and basically says, all of you disown me. Daniel has shamed me. I'm going to murder Kumiko unless he fights me up here in front of the village to the death. Daniel has to go up there, and it's a very brutal fight scene. This is more, way more brutal than anything in the first movie. And Chosen basically kicks his ass, right, at the start? Yeah, at the start, he's getting his butt kicked for sure. Yeah, and then like and like Mike said, the uh, Daniel tries the crane technique from the first movie. It doesn't work. Uh, Chosen just blocks it, and then Daniel basically is just getting murdered. And that's the thing with this movie that fights are to the death, not to for points. So Daniel is you know like on his deathbed. He's like pushed up against a statue. He's all bloodied, and and this is where we get the rousing conclusion with the drums, right? Yeah, Miyagi pulls out the family drum and. Amazingly, everyone else brought their drums too. The extended Miyagi family. <laughs> yeah, why? Why does everybody have a drum with them? I'm not sure. Maybe that's like bobblehead day. They give out drums. <laughs> yeah, this this was the drum giveaway night at the castle. It must have been. <laughs> well, it's a good thing that I guess Sato bobblehead night was next week. I guess. So they start rotating these little drums back and forth that makes the little balls slam against the side. And Daniel realizes what they're telling him to do the old Miyagi family tactic, which is to the side to side to avoid the punches. It's what he learned back at the cannery many scenes ago. And Daniel starts doing these side punches and like a like he spins away from the punch and at the same time does a counter punch and just tags chosen in the face. And it's really bloody. Like, you're not expecting it in a Karate Kid movie that Daniel, like, almost murders him over and over again. It's pretty brutal. Especially compared to the other one. And then the culminating moment, which harkens back to the beginning of Karate Kid Part 2. What does he do at the end of the fight once he is able to use the drum technique? Oh, this is fantastic. And this is why I love this movie as a kid. It's... They did the thing at the start of the movie where Miyagi was going to kill Kreese, but instead of karate chopping his, his face off, he honks his nose. Daniel does the exact same move to Chosen here and embarrasses him in front of the entire village while not killing him, where he holds up his fist. He's like, live or die, man, live or die. And Chosen's like, die. And Machio's like, wrong. And he slams his fist down right to his nose and honks his nose instead of says, honk. And that's the end of the movie, and everybody cheers, and Mr. Miyagi winks that the the teacher or the student has once again become the teacher. Yep. Great ending. It's really good, and again, we I feel like we almost did didn't do it justice how emotionally moving the the serious parts of this movie are, because we kind of focus on the goofy stuff. But I would argue this movie works both ways. If you want to see a, just a goofy '80s movie, there's a lot of goofiness in this. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, super goofy. But the emo there's so much, the emotions stronger because I think the first movie is a lot more nostalgic. But the emotions in this are just stronger. Like the comedy, I think the comedy's better. I think the serious moments are better than the original for sure. Yeah, like I, it's exactly like I said at the start. I think Karate Kid One is more a movie for like little kids and teenagers. Karate Kid Two is a movie for older people. And it's very much about love and loss and, like, legacy. And 
Again, I almost wish they never made a Karate Kid 3 because this movie ends so perfectly that Miyagi and Yuki are back together and finally after 60 years they will finally go back to the States and get married and Daniel's with Kumiko and she's adorable and she wants to go to the U.S. and be a ballet dancer and it's all set to happen. And then in part three they just dump all that storyline which kills me every time. So I just I I like to image I like to imagine this is a standalone movie and that this is the end of the series that nothing happens after this because this is like the perfect ending I think. Or retcon it three didn't happen yeah. and the other ones didn't happen either. And I'll admit I actually tear up in this movie a couple of times and it's always in the Miyagi and Yuki scenes because it's so poignant seeing people get back together after like fifty years with the love that should have been there all along and then again I will. Give a shout out once again to Pat Morita just being an excellent actor and Nova McCarthy, the other one, the woman playing Yuki, just she's very good. She can match him in every one of these scenes and it's fun just to watch her react to stuff. She's very good in this movie. I would say she is the underrated MVP here. For sure, she's amazing. she's an amazing actress. They all almost all do a good job except for Sato. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, do you have anything else to add? I think I have pretty much said everything I wanted to say about it. I just wanted people to know that I, I, again, I just don't like sequels. I don't like the cash grab thrown together, no effort put in whatsoeverness of them. But the Karate Kid 2 is one of the few that I think it's so earnest and just so well done that it's, it brings a tear to my eye. I'm honestly, I can't believe I say that about a sequel that I, I think this is one of the most moving movies of the eighties, especially as you get older and you have a little more life experience and you watch it from a different angle. Yeah, it's just not a standard sequel. I think that's why it's so powerful because it's, it's just yeah. You would think Karate Kid Part Two, it'll be just straight up rehashing it, and it's just a whole other place and a whole other story. Yeah. Now, are we going to talk about three at all? I know it be going into this podcast. Oh, I think we need to. There's some iconic moments in three. I think, you know the you know the villain pantheon in Karate the Karate Kid series. There's some great there's there's a couple great ones in part three if it's not gonna get its own time like uh, you think Johnny's intense or chosen I think Mike Barnes and Terry Silver are amazing in part three just how intense they are Barnes is just like a basically a mercenary hired by Silver just to come win the All Valley tournament like and Mike Barnes he is not he has to be over eighteen. <laughs> Okay, there's not a chance in hell I will ever do Karate Kid 3 as its own standalone episode, but I will begrudgingly admit it's one of the most ridiculous movies of the 80s I can think of. It's so stupid. The plot makes no sense. They make fun of it on riff tracks. It's like the room of Karate Kid movies. It's terrible, but there's things to enjoy about it. But again, do not contrast or compare 2 and 3. They are entirely different things. I'm shocked they're even written by the same person because 2 is so like well done and emotional and the structure is so perfect and three is just like cartoon goof fest and i don't remember did part three at the beginning did they just whitewash this whole part two this stuff with you know yuki and kamuko i don't remember did that just ignore and they don't even talk about it i know they're just back in the united states but do they even refer to it i think a refrigerator fell on both of them I don't know. I'm just making that up. <laughs> they went to Fresno. They weren't able to be in part three. Yes. yes. Yuki was transferred from Okinawa to Fresno for the entire movie. <laughs> I 
I don't. I honestly don't remember. I don't know how they write out Yuki and Kumiko in part three, but screw them for doing so because they are the leads. They're the, the romantic leads that Miyagi and Daniel San should have ended up with, and I will hear no argument otherwise. She's an amazing person. I should reevaluate my original vote. Yeah, thank you. That's that's what we do on this mo- on this podcast. I try to change people's opinions, and if I can't do that, I will browbeat you into agreeing with me that Kumiko is way hotter than Allie. Screw Elizabeth Shue. She cheated on him with Marty McFly anyway. That is true. And there's an homage, and we didn't really talk about the 50s dance scene, but there was... I felt like a Back to the Future homage and Earth Angel in the middle of this. It was one of the zanier parts of this movie. So. Yeah, well, that's actually fairly historic. At least it would have been in the 80s. I, I had a lot of friends who grew up in Japan, and they would tell me that, that American culture was about 30 years behind in Japan. Okay. So, like, in the in the 80s, they were big into American 50s culture. So that was actually historically accurate for that time. Okay. It was interesting and strange, but that gives it more context. That that makes sense. Yeah, Kumiko being into 50s dance music would have been very fitting for her character. All right, before we sign off, i got to end on one story. I have one thing I wanted to say about this, this episode, and this is one of my favorite stories, is that this movie is set in Okinawa, Japan, but it was not filmed in Okinawa. And I didn't know this. This was actually news to me when I read about it just the other day. It's filmed in Hawaii. If you guys want something funny, I will give you a recommendation. Look for Conan O'Brien. He does these uh, shows where he goes around the world to different countries, and he usually travels with his one of his producers, a guy named Jordan Schlansky. And, oh, yes. And Jordan is one of the most pretentious know-it-alls you've ever seen. He thinks he knows everything about everywhere. One of the funniest clips I have ever seen in my life is Conan and Jordan go to Japan, and they do a tea ceremony which is a little odd because that's supposed to be when people are romantically getting together, right? Yes, that's what it's supposed to be. So they do a tea ceremony, and Jordan is just going on and on because he's a know-it-all about how Japanese culture works, what a tea ceremony is, how you show honor. And Conan is like, wow, you know so much about Japan, Jordan. How did you learn? And Jordan says, well, because I watched Karate Kid 2. And Conan's like, what? Really? How how did watching Karate Kid 2 teach you about Japanese culture and turn you into a Japanese expert? And this pretentious douche Jordan says, well, because it's fil- it was filmed in Okinawa. And that's the thing. That's It was very historically accurate. You watch that movie, you see Okinawa because it was actually filmed there. It's all real. And that movie taught me to become an expert about Japan. And Conan just kind of grins him. Oh, really? That was filmed in Okinawa, huh? And Jordan's like, yes. Conan pulls out a, a little iPhone, and he pops, says, press play on this video. And what it is is a video from Ralph Macchio himself, who smacks down Jordan and says, hey, Jordan and Conan, I see you guys are in Japan. Well, I just want to drop a little trivia on you. Karate Kid 2 was filmed in Hawaii, not, Jap- not Japan. We were never actually in Japan. Have a good trip, guys. And the look on Jordan's face when he was just embarrassed by Ralph Macchio himself is one of the greatest things I have ever seen. So if you want a little crossover from Karate Kid 2 to Conan O'Brien, just look for Conan and Jordan in Japan going to the tea ceremony. I've seen some of the Schlansky stuff, but I'll have to look that one up and check it out. (laughs) It's the best. Jordan does not know what to say. He's so humiliated, and Ralph Macchio is the one who just delivered the death blow. It's awesome. Wrong! I'll check that out after this is done. 
All right. So anything else to add about one of the rare sequels I will be doing on this podcast? No, buy the buy the box set and you know watch Karate Kid two if you've not seen it, and then I guess you can watch part three if you really want to torture yourself, but don't watch the other one. It's just not worth it. <laughs> the one with the girl or the one with uh, Will Smith's kid? Will Smith's kid's really not that bad. The the next Karate Kid is just it's just not necessary or needed at all. And you can make the argument neither was three, to be honest. Yeah, 89 was a cash grab. There's several movies that shouldn't have been made, like Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, trust me. It was a rough year. All right, Mike, again, thank you for joining me. I always like having your video store expert opinion on this show. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until the next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'd love to sit down and have a tea ceremony with you as we talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.